0: Good morning, Soma. Soma Light. I like this, actually. Okay. So, um, it's a crazy thing, since I retired, um, I still get calls from people to do things. So, um, a couple of months ago, I got a call from a friend of mine in Albuquerque, She's a school teacher there, and she had a friend who was a fifth-grade teacher that wanted me to talk to her class. So the fifth-graders were learning about space. And they thought I would be a good person to talk about that. So anyway, I'd never met this teacher before. Um, she found out from me through, about me from my friend there in Albuquerque. And... Um, So I gave a talk about space. And the things they were supposed to learn about were meteors, planets, the moon, stars, stellar life cycle, galaxies, neutron stars, and black holes. So um, I gave them all of that. Some of it was glossed over pretty fast. I also talked about, some of you may recall, I got to meet a Nobel Prize winner um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago now. And um, he was the one that actually was the, the reason he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, he's a professor down at Caltech, and he was the first one to actually hear collisions of black holes. He had the data, and uh, which is pretty mind-blowing to me that um, I was getting to talk to the guy who, who actually did that. And um, it, in some ways, it, it's kind of funny. He's... he's um, Hmm, interesting. (laughs) Make sure I'm not doing something up here. Um, And um, anyway, uh, I also, of course, had to talk about the stuff that NASA had done, the moon landings and um, going on to Mars. And the kids had questions, as you might imagine. There were 110 of them. 110 fifth graders, okay? And um, I'm glad I wasn't the one trying to keep the thing organized. And, you know, I just came in, did my thing, and, and um, the, I think every hand went up at the end. <laughs> and do you know what the kids were worried about the most? They were actually concerned, and I thought this was interesting. One of the things I talked about was stellar life cycle and how stars only land, you know, last a finite amount of time, and eventually they burn out, okay? And sometimes they end in really catastrophic sort of ways, all right? They blow up supernovas, um, turn into black holes, all sorts of really bad things happen when those things happen. Um, And... um, our sun is actually on the smaller side, smaller end of things, so none of those things are going to happen. But one of the things it will do is it's going to turn into a red giant. It's actually going to consume the earth, okay? This is many billions of years from now. It's not like any one of us in this room is going to have to worry about this or anyone that we know, right? But... Um, they weren't worried about meteors colliding with Earth or how many astronauts did I know, and it wasn't um, what was Neil Armstrong like. I didn't get any of those questions, right? And I, I'm going, it, they were worried about when the sun was going to turn into a red giant and consume the Earth. And I mean, I, I got this question multiple times. I thought this was really fascinating. Um, And I I kept having to explain over and over again that it's inevitable that people are going to learn how to fly other places through space. And it's not just going to be other planets. I mean, we're talking billions of years here now. So, I mean, I I fully imagine that people will have gone off to other stars by that point. There is no question in my mind. The, The thing is, when we send those people out on those voyages, it's not going to be the people that you send out that get there at the far end. I mean, we're talking multi-generational um, sort of voyages for these people to get to these places if Jesus doesn't come back first. So, um, But this has been true for humans coming to inhabit the new world, okay? And, and I don't care if you're talking about the Native Americans that came here from Asia or the Westerners that came from Europe in recorded history, both came from outside. Because it's in our nature to explore, God hardwires us to do these things. And he flat out tells us right in here, go and fill the earth. We're told to have control over the earth. And the earth is one of God's greatest gifts to us, maybe number two after his own son, right? That he gives us this place to live. And um, we would be well advised to take good care of it, and we should treasure the gifts that God gives us, not treat his gifts as so much trash, which we've not done so great. And I think the universe in the same way. It's a gift to us. And just as we think Paul may have misunderstood Jesus commanding the disciples to spread the good news, and he tells everyone to go to the end of the earth, terra. And so Paul wants to go to Spain because Cape Finisterre is there. And Paul's got this hardwired in his brain It's like, no. Paul misses it. Jesus is telling us to go to the ends of the earth. And by the way, when you say that, the word in Greek is geia, all right? And it, it's actually the way that the word gets used in the Bible when it's originally written down. And what it really means is the dirt. End of the dirt is what it actually translates as. But it actually is telling us that Jesus wants us to go to the ends of the dirt. And when you think of it that way, all of a sudden all these other places that we're going to out there, those are dirt too. And maybe we're supposed to take the message there just in case. I just was fascinated by this about the kids. And um, the teacher is assembling a bunch of questions. She's picking up all the other questions. She's going to email them to me, and I'm going to answer them for these kids. Fascinating stuff. Let's open with a word of prayer. Oh Lord our God, how awesome you are. Heavenly Father, we read of your power and might over the universe. And we are so insignificant before your heavens. And how much smaller we must be before you. We are so undeserving of your kindness and your generosity and your love. Your love is greater than all the heavens. And we are so undeserving. Lord, we are overcome by the kindness that you show us. We know that even the greatest of the things that we can possibly imagine of you are just figments of who you really are. And without you, Lord, we are completely lost. Our sin and our failure weighs us down and we fall short. Heavenly Father, do not let us follow after our hearts, but to look to you, to open our hearts. God, give us the wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah here and to understand them. Give us discernment, Lord. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So some opening remarks. We have a remarkably short passage here. A whole chapter is just six verses. And the amazing thing to me is as soon as I opened it up and started reading what the passage was, there were some bits and pieces in here that were actually really fascinating when I started digging in. And it's remarkable to me that these words of Isaiah have come down to us. We're going to talk about a few of these places and Perhaps we hear the names and we don't think about it too much. We're going to talk about places in modern-day Israel, which is kind of fascinating. I just told you I, I, I've been busy here lately. I'm actually talking to a bunch of Israelis in three weeks from now. And we're going to do this online. There's a soaring club that's in Israel, of all places. And they want me to give my usual soaring talk that I give up at Tatchby every year that I do at Labor Day. And so I'm, I'm gonna give them one of my talks. So along with that, we, I, I was looking at these place names and there's this funny thing with translating it into English. English is somewhat a, a, of an imprecise language and one of these problems arises with the letter C, believe it or not. This is an interesting one. Because C either sounds like the letter S, okay, or it sounds like the letter K. And in Greek, the letter C does not exist. They either use S or K. And they completely ignore the fact that there might be a letter C. That Where that comes from? I don't know, but we do have it in English. And so we use the word, like K, for cup, right? You could spell that with a K, and everyone would know it would sound the same. And when we would say the word, we would still understand that. Or you get, like, the letter C. And that letter C is like the word ceremony, right? Right? You're used to, and we're so used to this, we don't even think about it much. We know which one pronounces which way, and we're just used to that. So, the Greek does not have that, neither in the Hebrew. It turns out that Greek and Hebrew have, one for one, the letters and the sounds correspond to each other. And there are 24 letters in the alphabet in both. Okay. There's actually a third option for the letter C, and that's when you put an H after it. Then it's got that ch sound, right? And, and in Greek, they actually have a letter just for that, and it's called chi. And it's, it's pronounced like that hard, it's got like a K sort of a feeling to it. And that's just the way it is. And this is the common practice for Greek. as a result of this, we have two ways to spell some ancient countries in English. Well, today we're talking about one of those places, and it's called Kush. And typically in English it's spelled with a C, all right? However, I have seen it spelled with a K, and it's Kush not like Hindu Kush, if, if you're familiar with the area in the Middle East. Hindu Kush is like northern Pakistan. This area of Kush is actually southern Egypt. Okay, and that's this kush le- this that we're going to be talking about. And um, southern Egypt and northern Ethiopia. In fact, the name Ethiopia first appears to arise in the Septuagint. It's fascinating that the Septuagint actually has Ethiopia. And they spell it with the letter A instead of the letter E. But otherwise, the word, you immediately recognize it for what it is. And it is the same place that they're talking about that we know of today as the country of Ethiopia. The Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek was the Septuagint. And that was done right around 260 B.C. So it was over 200 years old by the time Jesus is born. Now, the fascinating thing is that this was the first translation of the Hebrew Old Testament text into a modern language. And the reason that this was done was because the Hebrew people in general had lost their connection to their ancient language. They were speaking Greek back and forth to each other. Greek was the common language. And so everyone spoke Greek. And so what the Hebrews were doing by translating the Old Testament into Greek was they were translating this ancient language into something that everyone could understand. And the intent was that people could then read it and understand it for themselves. But there's this fascinating thing that happens when you translate it, right? Sometimes the words don't exactly translate correctly. Okay, let me give you an example. It turns out that the word pebble, small rock, right? Pebble gets used exactly twice in the Old Testament. It doesn't get used in the New Testament at all. Old Testament, it only appears in the Bible twice. Both are in the Old Testament, the word pebble. Fascinating thing. So I go and look up what this where these are and I go look up what they are in the Septuagint and it turns out the Septuagint translates them as two different words. And in one word it's small rock. And I immediately recognize it because they use the word lith. As soon as they say that I know it's a rock that they're talking about. And that is a Greek word for a rock. The other one I can't even remember what it was. It was Kyliks or something. And I I didn't recognize that one. Now, when this happens, there are multiple groups in the Jewish community that object to the translation and the using of the sacred texts in Greek. And there's actually a huge argument amongst the Jews, and believe it or not, this exists to today about the translation of Hebrew into any other language. And so you, you're used to seeing the rabbis standing up in the synagogue and reading out of the old testament and what you hear is actually what they think the hebrew language was from that time and what's happening is none of the people in the seats understand what's being said it would it's very much like going to a catholic church and they repeat the entire passage in latin today no one speaks latin today very few people know how to read Latin. But we don't use that language. We're used to reading English, which is what we're used to seeing. And that makes sense. There's another interesting twist here. Well, let me let me back up just a bit. The fact that the text has been translated makes it less than the word of God to these people. And so you have the, the difficulty with the, Latin, the, the Catholics speaking Latin is that they translated out of the Greek to be Latin. None of the New Testament was written in Latin, okay? Just to be clear, it was written in Greek. So you've already translated it and you're already speaking another translation and why you're stuck on Latin, I don't know. Well, I do know. It's because it's the Roman Catholic Church. All right. There are arguments about what is or is not the Word of God within Judaism when this happens, still today. As Christians... The apostles and the disciples quote the Septuagint. And it gets better. And in the Gospels, Jesus quotes the Septuagint. Now, I want you to stop and think about what that means. If Jesus quotes the Septuagint, it automatically becomes the Word of God. And I want you all to remember that. Jesus himself quotes the Septuagint. And in my mind, that unequivocally settles the matter. That said, modern rabbinical Judaism, which arose from the Pharisees, which is the Judaism that we see today, most prevalently rejects any translation. There's another interesting twist in here. So we're all familiar with the fact that there is a Eastern Orthodox Church. And um, notably, the the big one that we think of is the, the Russian Orthodox Church, arises out of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. They believe that their bishop, who resides in Constantinople, is the one who is the direct descendant and is the central line of the church. It turns out that there were five bishops in the early Christian church, and Rome and Constantinople were just two of the five. The other three, one of them is Alexandria okay, in Egypt. The other two will immediately, in my mind, carry much more weight. And one of them is Jerusalem, and the other one is Antioch. And so these are the five, and they're all supposed to agree amongst themselves as to what is the Christian religion, which they don't. And so we have this schism that exists between the two. So you have something that's made by man that is not what God intends out of the whole mess. And the Eastern Orthodox view is that the Roman Catholic Church is simply just one of the five. Just as there are two major branches of Judaism, within rabbinic Ju- Judaism there is the Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform Judaism, and there's another split, which are called the Karaites. And I was fascinated that one of the places we're going to talk about today, the modern city, is the home of the Karyite sect of the Jewish religion. And, and, I mean, I had no idea. And I'm reading this, and so this spins off into another study that I ended up doing this week. The Karyites interpret the Torah in rather strict terms. And to them, the Word of God is only the first five books. And that's it. Their entire Bible is only five books. The first five. The ones that Moses wrote. Any of that stuff that David wrote? Joshua? That's not the Word of God to them. Rabbinic Judaism makes concessions to the world, and the Karyites tend to be very strict. To some, the Torah is God's word. Only Moses' words are God's word. Let me give you an example of how strict some of these people are. They believe that the burning of wood is work. You cannot do work on the Sabbath. So this particular sect of the Karaites will extinguish the fire before sundown on Friday so that there is no fire in the house. The Karyites will not turn on a light bulb. The light bulb is not allowed to be lit because it burns. Okay? You can see where this is going. There's another group of the Karyites who say they can build the fire on Friday evening before the sun goes down, and the fire can burn for as long as it wants, and that's okay. Others say you can't burn the fire. Immediately, I can, I'm thinking of Jesus talking about Your animal falls in the pit on the Sabbath. What are you going to do? You go rescue the animal, right? That's just what you do. Jesus says that's what you do. (laughs) When Jesus says it's okay, I mean, the, the authority doesn't get any higher than that. I found this all fascinating by the way, um, incandescent lights are forbidden because they burn but it turns out LEDs and fluorescent lights are okay so stop and think about this that that only incandescent bulbs because they burn and and Fluorescent lights and LEDs, which neither one of them burn, so those are okay. There's, And then there's the argument about the electricity is being charged for, which is conducting business, and you can't conduct business on the Sabbath, so then the whole thing gets tossed out at that point. You can imagine what's sharing the gospel would that be a violation because that's work? I don't know. Obviously that's work, and the legalistic would say that sharing the gospel is not permitted on the Sabbath. I find all of these arguments just fascinating. What is it that God intended by the commandment for the Sabbath? It was done so that we would have a time set aside to honor God. Which of those honor God? Which of those situations? And each one of these has a different canon for what they call scripture. Obviously, having a common vernacular for God's word is exactly why Jesus came, to write his words large on our hearts. Only Hebrew out of the Torah is canon for some of the Jews. But what of the law, the historical books, and the wisdom literature, and the major and minor prophets? What of the Septuagint? What of the New Testament? There are sects of the Protestant church that only allow the authorized version, the King James Version. I know some people who are like this. They will only use the King James Version. Well, what did you do before the King James Version? I don't know. Jesus quotes the Septuagint. That's pretty amazing to me. One of the places mentioned in today's passage is Ashdod. The modern city of Ashdod, it turns out it's a port. It's a large port that's in Israel. And it was, by the way, re-established in 1956. Before that, there was nothing there. It was just the ruins of the ancient city. And um, the city is about 20 miles south of Tel Aviv, 12 miles north of Ashkelon another town near ancient Israel. And uh, 35 miles east of there is Jerusalem. Gath, by the way, is another one of the, the Philistine cities from that time. And it's about 10 miles inland of Ashdod. Gath is the home of Goliath. It's where he was born and lived. So David knew that one fairly well. And it turns out the Philistines had five cities at the time of King David. And um, Ashdod was founded in about 1700 BC. And it's one of the five pentopolis, or five cities of the Philistines, which included Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, and Gaza, along with Ashdod. Ekron is another lost city, by the way, was not rediscovered until 1996. I, I. It it completely blows me away that these places are lost. We read about them, and yet we don't know where they're at. The ancient city of Ashdod was two places, by the way. The coastal community was a harbor and a port city, and the other, about two miles inland, was along the coast road that ran from Egypt all the way up to Tyre, Sidon, and on to Damascus. We're also going to hear about how Isaiah serves as an instrument of God. He's told to do some pretty outrageous things here and humiliating outrageous things. And Isaiah doesn't even blink. He does this. The man's faith is just unbelievable to me. He, we know that Isaiah's faith was not perfect that he had doubts in God. What Isaiah did in today's passage was not one he stumbled over. Isaiah did what he was told, and I am absolutely sure it was a very difficult thing for him to do. Isaiah keeps pointing us back to Jesus and to God. So today we're looking at Isaiah 20, verses 1 through 6, and that's the whole chapter. What we have today is not a song or a poem. It's simple prose. Isaiah just wrote it out. Enough background. Let's go ahead and start. A sign against Egypt and Cush. Chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. So all of that is to say, this is when this happened. Isaiah says, this is when this happened. And this sets the date of the event. We know this to be the year 711 B.C. The Nubian king Shabako encouraged Ashdod to rebel against Sargon, king of Assyria, in 713 B.C. And the fortified city of Ashdod did this. And in 711 B.C., the army of the Assyrians came on orders from Sargon and conquered Ashdod there is a monolith in the ruins of ashdod with sargon's name on it and they know that the city fell in 711 bc shabako was the third nubian king of Kush, which runs from the nile cataracts and he conquered all the way to the Nile Delta, all the way to the north, to the Mediterranean Sea. He ruled in the 25th dynasty of Egypt. The king of Ashdod, we actually know who this was, King Imani, and he would flee to Egypt to seek refuge when his city fell, which Shabaku granted to him. This date... This event is well-documented. And we have records in the ruins in Ashdod and in the hieroglyphs in Egypt of all of this. It is well-documented, this event that Isaiah speaks of. So, this is the date. We know that. What is Isaiah being told? Verse 2. At that time the Lord spoke... By Isaiah the son of Amaz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Isaiah was told to walk as a prisoner or a captive of war, wearing no outer garments. Sackcloth was a clothing of mourning. In Isaiah 15.3, Isaiah 15.3, In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Isaiah 37.1, Isaiah 37.1, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Isaiah 58.5, Isaiah 58.5, is such the fast I choose a day for a person to humble himself. It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? The other thing that sackcloth got used for was as the distinctive prophetic garment. Two kings one8. two kings one eight. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, "It is Elijah, the tishbite." Zechariah 13:4, Zechariah 13:4. On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put a hairy cloak put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. Because of this commandment from God, Isaiah walked around in public in his undergarments with his backside exposed. Verse 3. And the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So the prophet Isaiah walks around for three years disrobed and barefoot as a sign against Egypt and Cush. You notice here that the Lord uses the name, the title, My Servant for Isaiah. Isaiah. Which is an extremely high honor from God. Psalm 105. 42. Psalm 105. 42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Abraham was servant of the Lord God. Exodus 1431. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses Moses was a servant of the Lord God Ezekiel 28:25 Ezekiel 28:25 Thus says the Lord God When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them, in the sight of the nations. Then they shall dwell in their own land that I give to my servant Jacob. Jacob was a servant of God. Joshua 24, 29. Joshua 24, 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. Joshua was a servant of the Lord God. 2 Samuel 3.18. 2 Samuel 3.18. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hands of all their enemies. King David was a servant of the Lord God and many others including the prophets Isaiah 44:26 Isaiah 44:26 Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers who says of Jerusalem she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins The prophets are the servants of the Lord God And in Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, we find the following. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. All of God's people are servants of the Lord God. And the fascinating thing, of course, about the servants of the Lord God, Isaiah fifty four seventeen. Isaiah fifty four seventeen. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me, declares the Lord. God has promised his servants a great heritage. So this is to all of us that we fall into this same category as all the others that we have just talked about. Back to Isaiah 20, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 20, verses 4 and 5. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. And they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. So at this point, I go look up who is the king of Assyria at that time. And there is this huge, long list, dynasty of these kings. And the king they talk about here, his grandson is the one who is king when the kingdom of Assyria disappears. He loses the kingdom, he gets conquered, and the Assyrians are no longer a people. They're assimilated into the other nations around them. It's the grandson of the king that we're going to talk about here. The king we're going to talk about here is Ashardon. He conquers Egypt and Cush in 671 B.C. This prophecy comes to pass in 671 B.C. And all the peoples of Egypt and of Cush, all the leaders... Are marched back to Assyria through the land of the Hebrews. This happens right in front of God's people. They see what happens to these others. Ashardon was the youngest son, and there were two older brothers that attempted to kill him and were killed themselves in the attempt to overthrow the youngest brother. Ashardon's father was uh, Sennacherib. Sennacherib's father was Sargon II, the one that we talked about the very first. So Sargon's father was King Tilgath-Pilser. We've talked about him before. So we have the four that are before Ashardon. Ashardon's son was... Ashurbanipal. By the way, Ashurbanipal was the first to establish a great library. And it's because of that library that we have the myth of Gilgamesh today. This guy collected tens of thousands of books and stored them in the library. And the ruins of the library have been found. And that's why we have certain books from this time. It was the first systematically organized library known to exist. And because of that, we have text from that era. Three later kings, descendants of Ashurbanipal, will rule Assyria until the fall of the empire in 612 BC, when the heritage of the Assyrians is blotted out. This verse is a portent against relying on Egypt or Cush. Egypt was vulnerable as an ally and eventually would be overthrown. Leviticus 18one through 3, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. We are told to not rely on the world. God's people are not to rely on the world. We are to rely on the Lord God. The chapter closes, verse 6. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we had hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we now escape? You notice the word, in that day, occurs. These are the exact same words that got used way back in Isaiah 2 and many times since. They began in Isaiah 2:11. Isaiah 2:11. The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God's people look to God for salvation in that day. Joel 2:31, Joel 2:31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You notice in the phrase there, it also says, in whom we hoped, relying on man's salvation is folly. Egypt's fate shows that no ally can save them. And this is the end of the passage that Isaiah has for us. Again, God is punishing those who oppress his people. Isaiah is being used as an example here against the Egyptians and the Cushites. And behind all of this is the promise that God will be there in the end, in that day. And that God is the only one who can save us. God is the only one that we can rely on. Jesus is still there calling to us. Jesus had to pay for our rebellion. These people didn't realize it, that there was one who was coming to pay for their rebellion. I think Isaiah did know. There's too much of the book of Isaiah that points to Jesus directly. Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. Isaiah says, don't look at the Egyptians. Don't look at the Cushites. Look at Jesus. Look to God. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. He wants us to be more Christ-like, to stand apart from the rest of the world. To become more like Jesus. God loves us. We look at the chaos in the world today. I read an article this week, a scientific article, about COVID. There were two really good ones, man. The first one I read was that COVID very nearly did not become a pandemic. The very first person that came down with the disease at the Wuhan fish market, back in November, two years ago, almost two years ago now. If he had gone home that day, we would not have a worldwide pandemic. But because he went to work and infected 38 people in that fish market, we have all the people that have died in the pandemic. And if that person had not done that that day, we would not have a pandemic today. We, when, when this article was being discussed online, I, I commented about how many times it's a single individual that triggers something that becomes huge in the world. The chaos in the world. The second article that I read, it turns out in the United States, we know that over 90% of the infections are coming from 2% of the people that have the disease. It turns out that only 2% of the people are the ones that have very high viral loads, and they're the ones that are infecting 90% of the people that come down with the disease. Wouldn't it be great if you had hats that said 2%? You'd avoid that person, right? You'd know. Don't go near them. They're bad. doesn't work that way. You don't know that. God loves us all. How this message sounds so much like the world we live in now. And it reminds me how I fail every day. I fail God continually. And again and again, I'm on my knees before God, pleading again for His forgiveness. I need God's power of forgiveness. And yet God still chooses us. God still chooses me. God's greatness will be there for all to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all be witness of his greatness and his splendor on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so great and so amazing. Lord, you have kept your words all through these years, handed down, spoken to us by Isaiah, and kept all these years just for us to have. Down through the ages, you have given them to us. Lord, we are so incredibly small. We worry about the things that have no meaning. We have been unfaithful. We keep trying to save ourselves. We look to Egypt. We look to Cush. We look to the world. And you want us to hear you in Isaiah's words. You continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. And we're still looking at the world. And you lovingly guide us and care for us. Heavenly Father, carve your word in our hearts. We need the words of the prophet Isaiah. Give us the lessons that we must learn and guide us in your perfect path, your plan of redemption. Your salvation is so perfect. Heavenly Father, let us not smooth out your rock. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. You are so amazing, and we love you, Lord. We bless you and honor you. And we praise the name above all names, the name of Jesus.